Hi, this is Paul. This is a video I've been waiting for a while to get to. It touches on a bunch of the issues that I touched on in the previous video. Um, <laughs> Grizz made the comment, I did, I did the hand things and I didn't say opponent processing. So winsome versus antithetical, uh, sort of opponent processing in the culture. This is a big deal right now in evangelical churches. Evangelicalism is sort of splitting apart over this winsome versus not winsome. Uh, sort of ground zero for this was a conference up in Battleground, Washington that happened earlier this year. Aaron Wren, I met Aaron in Chicago in the, um, in the little estuary cluster thing that we had in Chicago, had with uh, Bethel McGrew before I went to Synod this summer. And um, Aaron's work is something that I've been watching for a long time. He started with a, a, a newsletter called The Masculinist, which, uh, <laughs> which turned a whole bunch of women that I know off right away. But, but it was quite popular. And part of what's interesting about Aaron Wren is that in the... So, so in terms of evangelical church culture... Um, you, a major, you had sort of the moral majority, and that was in the 1980s. That was followed up by the seeker movement in the 1980s and 1990s. And the seeker movement was followed by the emergent movement. And the emergent movement was sort of a split between, that, that's really where the beginnings of sort of the progressive evangelicals and the young, restless, and reformed started to diverge. You had Reformed theology suddenly getting very popular in a lot of Southern Baptist places. And during this time, Tim Keller in New York City began to really draw the nation's attention. And he, on one hand, was a minister. The last video I did in this series was about Tim Keller. Tim Keller was a minister in the Presbyterian Church, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America, which was a split off of the PCUSA, which is the old mainline denomination. And... Tim Keller went to New York City. I should pay more. I should probably do more background with Tim Keller because a lot of people don't know his background and don't understand where Tim Keller comes from. Because actually, these stories get very old. Tim Keller got his undergraduate. He first went to seminary at Gordon Conwell. He went to Bushnell in Pennsylvania. Went to Gordon Conwell. That's where he met his wife. Um, uh, his wife Kelly, Kelly's at it. Shoot, <laughs> um, and and then he went to Westminster, Philadelphia, and part of what was happening at Westminster, Philadelphia during the seventies was during the seventies and eighties, especially during the seventies, was sort of this urban urban renewal in reform in conservative reformed communities. And, and in many ways, my father was sort of adjacent to that movement. And in fact, there was one summer where my father was a was the speaker at a, a conservative Presbyterian camp. Uh, I was too young to I wasn't it was mostly for teenagers. I was too young, but because we were the family of the speaker, we stayed in this house and, and I, I remember that trip quite well. But what I didn't appreciate was that there was this whole urban ministry movement that was going on within the neo-evangelical community, and Westminster, Philadelphia was sort of ground zero for that. And the Christian Reformed Church was, was quite involved with that, Spirit and Truth Fellowship in Philadelphia. And, and so this is very much part of my roots. And Tim Keller comes out of that 
movement. Uh, Roger Greenway, who is the father of a friend and classmate of mine, Scott Greenway, who Scott ministers in West Michigan, is in the CRC. Roger Green, Scott Greenway is another third generation. I believe his son's going into the ministry, so I guess they're adding a fourth. But so there's a, there's a lot of ties to this. And so, of course, Tim Keller takes some of the ideas of the seeker movement, doesn't like a lot of the kitsch and um, some of the entertainment of it and sort of adds kind of a classical neo-Puritan movement. Of course, Tim Keller's right there with the foundation of the Gospel Coalition. Tim Keller then plants Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, leaves Westminster Seminary, and that's when in the 90s and early aughts, Tim Keller became very popular in the Christian Reformed circles, and, and he was kind of a bridge figure. A lot of Christian Reformed progressives were leery of him because he was against women elders and women ministers, although he had women deacons. And when I visited Redeemer Press in 2006, a lot of the ministry, the, the heads of ministry departments were women. So Tim Keller sort of straddled that line a little bit. He was, he was clearly formally complementarian, as was his wife. They, they, they have a book. His wife has a very interesting book on it, in fact. And, but they were, they were sort of the hot church in the aughts. And Tim Keller, Tim Keller would, would go on major media. He, he would sort of be the kind of, he, you can find a Tim Keller talk at Google. Tim Keller captured the imagination of a lot of people because here was someone who was a Christian conservative who seemed to also have some traction in the culture. And, and so Tim Keller really became sort of the winsome prototype for, for this kind of ministry. Now, another guy who spoke at this conference, um, James Wood, who is now teaching in who is now teaching at Redeemer University. Society as a whole. Which is the which is a a university in Ontario, Canada that was founded by Christian Reformed people as an alternative to Calvin University. Not necessarily because of um, politics, Christian Reformed politics at Calvin, but but as much because it's just it just cost a lot more for Canadians because of the exchange to go to to go to college in Michigan, they couldn't work. Uh, you know, I knew some seminarians, some Canadian seminarians who, you know, were, were quite impoverished by trying to, you know, live in live in Michigan and go to school in Michigan, especially those who had gone later in life. Anyway, so towards the end of sort of the heyday of Redeemer, Tim Keller retired a number of years ago. Aaron Wren wrote The Masculinist and sort of came in on that sweep because Part of what was going on with James Davidson Hunter, Tim Keller, was there was this renewal of interest as to whether or not evangelicals could do ministry in urban settings. And sort of like what Willow Creek Church in northern Chicago did. Now, again, another Christian Reformed tie. Bill Hybels grew up in the Christian Reformed Church. Willow Creek became the kind of church that would start a church planting movement and help plant churches all over the world. Redeemer Presbyterian did that too, but their focus was on cities. Part of what happened with Redeemer was I got to know Fred Harrell, uh, Scott Sherman, Mike Hayes. They had sort of a Redeemer plant 
in San Francisco. And when they came and planted their church in San Francisco, sort of like Redeemer in New York, it grew fast as, and it was a strange thing because here was a complementarian, conservative, reformed church in the heart of one of America's most liberal cities, and, and the church flourished. The church then moved from the PCA to the Reformed Church of America so they could, some of you are going to, gonna, I'm predicting it in the comments, it's going to come, so they could ordain women. But they swore up and down when they joined the Reformed Church in America that they weren't going to budge on same-sex marriage. So then they came to the Reformed Church of America. Pretty soon there was sort of a special urban ministry classes in the Reformed Church of America. And then a few years after that, they sort of gave a, a statement on same-sex sexuality that, well, that was a big fight in the Reformed Church of America. And... Uh, they lost a lot of the people that were going to their church, and it was it was there was a lot of drama in that. All that to say is that Wren comes in towards the end of let's say the Tim Keller urban ministry movement, and Wren right away was talking in some ways a lot of the same language as Tim Keller, James Davidson Hunter about renewal of the city, and especially about the cultural relationship between elites and the, the culture of the nation. Now, the United States is a massive nation with a lot of cultural conflict and many subcultures. So it's very difficult to talk about these things. At our last estuary meeting, one of the, one of the topics that came up was can you really say things are getting better or things are getting worse or sort of moving in the right direction? Political pollsters love to do this sort of thing. Aaron Wren wrote a piece and then wrote another piece and one got posted at First Things, which is a former, well, which is an interesting website and its story is also interesting in terms of the um, conservative Christian space in the United States on the positive, neutral, and negative world. And so he's really been a central figure in this. And I, one of the things I really like about Wren is that he, he is more self-conscious about the transition of American Protestant WASPy elites and how that transition has gone. I remember when I got the book, um, Jesus and John Wayne, to me, I was... I'm very well accustomed to the tight relationship between American conservative politics and American conservative evangelicalism. That's old news. You know, we saw that with Karl Rove. We saw that with George W. Bush. We saw that with the moral majority. You can see the roots of that in George Marsden's writing about American fundamentalism and what happened through the 20th century. All of that is old news. To me, the far more interesting story is the story that Wren, uh, Aaron Wren, in, in many ways, almost uniquely keeps an eye on, which is what happened to the American Protestant elite that basically used to run this country. And if there's a, I think, I think for a professional historian to really write that story well, that to me is is really the central story, and and Ren isn't a, a professional historian, but he 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 works on that, and he talks about that more than anybody else. And to me, 
that's the that's the ball to keep your eye on and Ren does it and Ren does it better than than almost anyone. And so when suddenly I saw this video pop up in Twitter and from James Wood that he had spoken at this conference and then I went and saw the conference videos and I thought these videos more than a lot of things are really sort of at the nexus of of what's happening in the culture. So I want to give this some time. So here we go. Term negative world. It's up to me to tell you what it is. And so that's what my first talk is basically going to be today. And we used to talk about the culture war or this conflict between the church and secular society. Well, today it seems like there's a culture war. Now, before you let him get too far, this is a lot of in-house talk. So these are conservative, politically conservative, um, small orthodox, big R reformed. Um, this is a gathering for, for these people. And this is obviously not in a major church. Um, this is a small church, I think, in a fairly small... I, I didn't look up... Grizz says he's been to Battleground, Washington. I never have. I'm sure Nate Heil can add some add some light here. But So, so this, is, this is a lot of in-house talk. And, but I think this has implications that definitely deal with many of the tensions that are in this little corner of the internet for us. And so when you, when you listen... Yeah, let's let him go some more. But the culture war is actually inside of the evangelical church itself. We're seeing a lot of conflict, a lot of acrimony, and a lot of realignment. So we'll have this group of evangelicals over here point their fingers at this group over here and say, look at them, they voted for Trump. How dare they? How horrible is that? And then you have this group of evangelicals over here pointing their finger over here and say they're going woke. They're abandoning traditional teachings on sexuality, whatever it may be. And there's all this conflict. And if you're on Twitter, then you see it every day. We also see the people like David French, who you would have classified as a really a hardcore culture war type, is actually spends most of his time now criticizing conservative evangelicals. Russell Moore, who actually ran a major entity or agency in the Southern Baptist Convention, left to join the staff of a church that baptizes babies. Somebody needs to find out what's going on there. <laughs> and uh, Owen Strand, who was a, a Southern Baptist seminary professor, he left a very nice established seminary to go be the provost of a startup seminary. So people are moving around, alliances are changing, and there's conflict. And what's causing this? What's going on? And what is happening is that there has been a fundamental shift in society into what I call the negative world. I love it that you can hear babies cry during this presentation. That's uh, it's a sign of a healthy place. That is putting tremendous new pressure and different forms of pressure on the evangelical church, which is producing deformation of existing strategies, sort of conflict and realignment, similar to what we see happening in conservative politics. Now, now this is an old story, and this is why I often recommend that people read George Marsden on the history of American fundamentalism, and especially the war between the modernists and the fundamentalists. Another video I want to do on Tom Holland's um, Jesus. In many ways, we have to work through 
the issues raised in the modernist fundamentalist war. And we have to do that in terms of understanding the Bible and all of the stuff that's going on in the Jordan Peterson biblical seminar stuff, the stuff we're doing with cognitive, um, with cognitive science, all of this for a minister, this is why I'm interested in this stuff, all of this impinges on the fallout from the fundamentalist modernist war that happened and split denominations, split families. So Westminster, Philadelphia grew out of old Princeton Theological Seminary. And in much of the modernist fundamentalist wars in the church wars in the early 20th century, the conservatives and fundamentalists lost. And so they had to go out and found new institutions. What's happening now is, is basically similar to that. And there's a major, there's a major, major divisions that are going on in evangelical churches. So if you roll the clock back to the 1950s, this was probably the high watermark of Christianity in America. About half of all adults attended church every Sunday in the 1950s. Uh, more than that were members. Uh, we were adding in God we trust to our money. We were adding under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. We had a sort of Protestant establishment in America at that time. There was even prayer in the public schools. And while it may not have been an especially devout era, perhaps, uh, there was a sort of soft institutionalization of a sort of generic Protestantism that was in the process of absorbing Catholics and Jews into that as well. A couple of things. Now, it's nice when they pull the camera back to get a sense of who's there. Now, notice this is a very young audience. And anybody that's been around in the church space or even in this little corner space, um, this is a very young audience. I mean, a lot of these guys, um, if they had been new atheists at some point and you know, gone through the Jordan Peterson, Jonathan Peugeot pipeline might be ortho bros, but these are sort of next generation, probably young, restless, and reformed. That's that's who this is. The history that he's talking about is important because at the beginning of the 20th century, even in mainline waspy um, American church, there's plenty of exclusivity. African-Americans had their own institution. Jews were not welcome. Catholics were not welcome. Part of what happens in the Second World War in the Roosevelt administration, Franklin Roosevelt for the first time puts, Catholic, puts Catholics and Jews in places in elite positions in the government, in the cabinet. And so this then causes in the 1950s and the 1960s a lot of debate about and there's a famous book written, Protestant, Catholic, Jew. These were sort of the, the three main white elements of the culture. Of course, African-Americans, that then is going to become increasingly an issue through the civil rights movement. But again, the black church sociologically is very different from the white church in America because of the historic roots. So what Wren is mostly talking about is, is politics in white churches. Now, that's also going to continue to change because of Pentecostals. There's no, there are no church, there's no church movement as racially integrated in America as Pentecostalism. Pentecostal churches are 
you know, in the old style rainbow coalition, as Jesse Jackson might say, and Hispanics, African Americans, whites, the um, the Pentecostal the Pentecostal movement has really done racial integration better than almost any other movement. So these are some of the issues. And so Christianity was held in esteem and honor in the country. But starting in the 1960s, and you can- now, now again, when he says Christianity, it's important to remember that's mainline Christianity. This is part of my complaint with the whole Christian nationalist language, because go to Duke University, there's a cathedral at the center, go to Wellesley College, very liberal college in 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 Massachusetts. There's a there's a church building at the center. Every Christmas they hold a multi-faith celebration of, you know, choirs, you know, very beautiful, very lovely music, if you like that kind of music. So any mainline university you go to, uh, when I talk to James Wellman, you know, the church building surrounding institutions and academies, go to major colleges and you will find church buildings at the center. And again, if you want to understand this, read George Marsden's work on the secularization of universities in America. I've talked about that in videos. So church and state were right like this. But remember, it was America was mostly Protestants during the 40s and 50s. Catholic and Jews were let in. That's when you begin to get this Judeo-Christian as sort of a phrase, sort of allowing the Catholic and Jews into the power structure in America. You could probably date it to the Kennedy assassination. I don't think the Kennedy assassination per se had anything to do with it, but somewhere around that date, things started to go the wrong direction for Christianity. Christianity went... Okay, now... Another person to member to mention in this history, and again, I've, I've touched this on videos in the past, is Robert Bella. During the Kennedy administration, Robert Bella writes about civil religion and coins that phrase and talks about the fact that in American society, you also sort of have this other pretty Christian, sort of religionish nationalism. Anybody know what day Abe Lincoln was assassinated on? Good Friday. Abe Lincoln is in many ways the Jesus of American civil religion. And um, let's say George Washington is the Moses. Let us out of the promised land of, of British monarchical imperialism. And if you read any history in America, you'll, you'll bump into these things a lot. Into a period of decline in America, uh, starting around 1964, one that continues all the way forward to the present day. And this period of decline from 64 to the present, I divide into three different eras or worlds that I call the positive, the neutral, and the negative worlds. These names refer to how society as a whole views Christianity. We're used to talking about how the church views the culture. So there's a very famous book by H. Richard Niebuhr called Christ and Culture. It's all the different ways that different Christian people have attempted over the years to reconcile Christ and culture. Well, this is a little bit the opposite. Christ and Culture was basically everyone at Calvin College, when I went to Calvin College, had to read Christ and Culture. That was a, that was a big deal for our little subculture. And um, Calvin College 
was very much the wing of the Christian Reformed Church in the post um, in the Cold War years was we were Kuyperian transformationalists. Now even sort of this Kuyperian theme ha has sort of split in the United States now. This is how the culture views Christianity. So in the positive world, which lasted from 1964 to 1994, Christianity is in decline. Church attendance is declining. The metaphysical and moral claims of Christianity are... Now, I don't know if he'd have it started. Positive world was pretty much everything in America, and it intensified into the 50s and 60s. But again, you can't read George Marsden's history of um, American church history or Mark Knoll's history of American church history and not appreciate just how deeply Protestant America was. Protestantism was, in many respects, sort of the state church of America, but because it didn't have a state church, evangelicalism and, you know, sort of became half of it in the neo-evangelicalism, but again, that's after the Second World War. It was the mainline church that was the established, that was the establishment churches in America. They are being called into question. Nevertheless, Christianity is still basically viewed positively. To be known as a good church-going man, uh, you know, people want to vote for you. It helps you get a job, that sort of thing. And Christian moral norms are still the basic moral norms of society. Around 1994, we hit a tipping point in which Christianity was no longer viewed positively, but it wasn't really yet viewed negatively either. It was sort of seen as a sort of socially neutral attribute, hence this is the neutral world. Now, you can also see in that period the rise of new atheism. And this, this sort of really got heated up then with 9-11 and the sort of the recession of Christianity. Now, I've, I talked about this a lot when I first started making videos and first started making commentary videos about Jordan Peterson. Part of what happened with Darwin is that First, the Bible was just assumed as a source of truth. And when I get into the questions about Tom Holland and Jesus and modernist readings of the Bible, the Bible was a source of truth. What happens in the modernist fundamentalist fight is that fundamentalists say the Bible is a source for history and morals, and the modernists say the Bible is a source for morals only. All right? And... And, and what happens then is you get this fight over a modernist conceptualization of history and, and again, that's another video that I want to get into. What begins to happen in the 1990s is that the Bible went from, again, with the fundamentalists, this is our source for history and morals. The main line said, this is our source for morals. And then in the 1990s, you started to have the question of, is the Bible an adequate source for our moral life? And, you, and that was, again, part of um, the women's movement. The Bible was seen as somewhat recessive with respect to the roles of women. And, um, and then obviously the LGBTQ movement, the Bible was seen as regressive with respect to same-sex sexuality. So increasingly in the 90s and then in the aughts, the Bible increasingly, people were suspicious that those old morals that we derive from the Bible, not so good. That lasted from around 1994 to 2014. And then in neutral world, Christianity is essentially one lifestyle choice among many in a sort of pluralistic multicultural society. 
And in this era, Christian moral norms held a sort of residual force. But around 2014, we hit a second tipping point. Now, now, again, this is this is pretty broad ranging, but again, back with my thesis with Tom Holland, the Bible still sort of lays the moral foundation, but it, it's sort of bifurcated. Ross Douthat just wrote a really good piece in the New York Times about this. It's sort of, it's continuing to fracture. So sort of the moral agreements that there were in the United States, that's continuing to fracture. And entered what I call the negative world, where for the first time in the 400 year history of America, society as a whole, elite culture, now views Christianity negatively. Being known as a devout, Bible-believing Christian does not help you get a job in Silicon Valley today. Quite the opposite, in fact. Additionally, Christian morality is expressly repudiated by society and is even viewed as a threat to the new emerging moral order. Now, in Canada, it's it's also the case that there are places, Canada's far more secular than the United States. And on the university, it's very secular. You might not, you might not have no professors at the university who are Christians. Christianity might not, you know, ABC, as, as Rupert Sheldrick said, anything but Christian. And so the Canadian story is different because Canadian history is different from American history, but I like to illustrate the difference between these worlds using three different presidential sex scandals. In the positive world, you can go back to 1987. Colorado Senator Gary Hart was a leading contender for the Democratic nomination for president the next year. The Miami Herald reported that a young woman had stayed overnight in his townhouse in Washington, D.C., and he was forced to drop out of the race. Just the appearance of potentially having had an affair disqualified him from running. Fast forward to the neutral world, 1998. The Drudge Report breaks the news that Bill Clinton has been having an affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. This caused a massive scandal. Bill Clinton was badly damaged by it. It probably cost Al Gore the election in 2000. Now, now, part of this was also Americans were increasingly electing governors from the South. They're trying to bridge that that moral gap, um, but of course that that has continued to um, that has continued to change as well. And yet, the Democrats rallied around him, and he survived. And people said, "Look, his his personal behavior, however deplorable, is not." relevant to his public performance in office. So it damaged him, but he survived it. In the negative world, fast forward to October 2016, NBC News has been sitting on this Access Hollywood tape of Trump making all these statements about women, and they're just ready to drop their October surprise. They can't wait to take Trump down with this tape. They release it. And it turns out to be a 48-hour blip of a scandal, and he goes on to win the election a couple weeks later. 
So in the negative world, these sex scandals basically don't matter at all. And I think there's a sort of irony, maybe a delicious irony in a sense, that the very people who tore down and rejected the Christian moral system are the ones who made it possible for someone like Donald Trump to become president. If we weren't in the negative world, Donald Trump would never have been considered a serious candidate for president due to his personal behaviors. But in this negative world, it didn't matter anymore. And of course, the other irony is that the people who voted for Trump are the people who would have previously been most strident that character and leaders matter. So I think, I think it's kind of interesting that the profound consequences this negative world has had for our society. Now, now I really love the point he made there because you might miss it, but the point he made is that it's not just, let's say, the cultural heirs of the main line that are changing as the world changes. It's also the conservative, the fundamentalists. Uh, they, too, have been changing. I mean, again, Gary Hart. So back when Gary Hart was no longer considered a viable candidate, he was no longer considered a viable candidate because what he did violated mainline sensitivities, even though, and I mean, even though, of course, presidential um, mistresses and sex scandals had gone on forever, but of course, the press didn't talk about FDR's lover, didn't talk about John F. Kennedy's dalliances in the White House. They didn't talk about that. The culture has been changing. And so Gary Hart, bang, no longer suitable candidate. Bill Clinton, you know, many of the people who yelled their heads off over the Monica Lewinsky scandal lined up for Trump. And Ren's point is that this isn't just one side changing and, you know, pointing out hypocrisy. This is the whole culture moving. Now, uh, why did I pick these dates? And again, picking dates for transitions in history is always somewhat impressionistic. Uh, I picked 2014 as the neutral to negative transition because this was one year before the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision that essentially institutionalized Christianity's new status in society. 2014 is also when people, including Democratic pundits like Matthew Iglesias, started talking about what they called the Great Awoke. Now, now again, in all fairness to, um, to some who listen to this video, Aaron Wren has his own filters about what Christianity should be. And that's implicit in what he just said about um, institutionalized Christianity's position in society. Again, I'm waiting for a historian to really write a good book about, um, about, the, about basically, if you have Christian nationalism on the one side, you have Christian imperialism on the other side. And those Christian imperialists are heirs of the, of the mainline churches including Democratic pundits like Matthew Iglesias, started talking about what they called the Great Awakening. The use of phrases like white supremacy or structural racism just exploded in the major media. Also, 2013 is when uh, New York University professor Jonathan Haidt, a lot of people follow Jonathan Haidt, he started saying, man, I noticed something is up with my students. Crazy things are happening on campus. So. Clearly something happened during Obama's second term uh, that represented a major social rupture um, in, in the country. Now, the, the transition from positive to neutral is a little less preci precise. I think you could make an argument for 1989, which is when the Berlin Wall fell, 
and the Soviet Union collapsed because that end of the Cold War really was critical to ending the positive world because Christianity was a key part of essentially the moral arsenal that America used in its battle against the Soviet Union, which was this sort of atheist, godless communist state that repressed religion like the Catholic Church in Poland. And that's why back in the 50s we were adding, in God we trust through our money, adding under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. We're putting these symbols of Christianity into the center of American culture as part of the Cold War. And so once the Cold War ended, that sort of uh, got rid of a bulwark that sort of Christianity had. Uh, and it's helpful to remember then with 9-11, the fear was that, again, neutrally, the, the New Atheist Movement had a lot to do with this. So neutrally, religious fundamentalism then went from being too prudish, too hyper, too dangerous because, of course, the, um, you know, the, the Islamists who attacked 9-11, Osama bin Laden, they were then seen as Islamic fundamentalists. And of course, that is sort of seen in many people's minds as parallel to um, religious, to Christian fundamentalists. And, you know, off the new atheists went. You know, I picked 1994 for a few reasons, though. One is it's the year Rudy Giuliani became mayor of New York and the cities came back. Think about the implications of the urban renaissance, the urban resurgence, certainly. And as I remembered with, as I mentioned with Tim Keller, this was a lot of that movement. And Wren, when he started his newsletter, those were the kinds of issues that he was writing about in his newsletter. And, and in many ways, um, the masculinist, that newsletter sort of was for some conservative, young, restless, and reformed, evangelical Christians, was, was sort of a pre-Jordan Peterson thing. It's affected Portland, Seattle, places like that. In the 70s, uh, there was a famous billboard in Seattle, with the last one leaving Seattle, turn out the lights. People thought cities were going down the tubes. The rebirth of the- and, and you can see some of this, of course, in Mark Driscoll and the rise of Mars Hill. That was all part of the emergent movement. I've talked about that in the past. The cities really had a profound influence, both in the culture and especially in the church, as I'll talk about in, in a bit. 94 was also the year of the Republican Revolution when Newt Gingrich and the House Republicans took over the House Representatives, the contract with America. That was a watershed moment. It really represented the peak of probably early 90s populism and probably also the peak of the religious right influence within the Republican Party. So I picked 94, but again, if you want to pick a slightly different date, um, be my guest. Now, how did evangelicals respond to this changing landscape of the three worlds uh, in the period since, say, 1964? Well, now, it's really helpful to remember that during the 1980s with the moral majority, um, they're already, evangelicals already had sort of a take back the country. That, that's been sort of standard fare for, for fundamentalist evangelical and neo-evangelicals. Really, again, if you read Marsden, that goes all the way back to the, funda the fundamentalist modernist fights that were happening in the early 20th century. And so already with the, with the rise of, of, Dar of Darwinism, with, with many of these developments in the late 19th, early 20th century, 
a theme begins to develop in certain groups that they want to take back or go back or get back. Well, they responded with three characteristic ministry strategies uh, that are culture war, seeker sensitivity, and cultural engagement. So the culture war strategy, or what we might think of as the religious right, emerged in the 1970s and, of course, continues with us today. It's probably the best known of these. Now, it's helpful to remember that that name didn't come about until really the new urbanization in the 1990s with James Davidson Hunter. He was the one that coined the culture war term. And, and again, the term has become so ubiquitous, it's, 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 it's you know, people, people forget who coined it. And, and I think Ren is right. Tom Holland mentioned this. They, er, the rest is history. Early on had a culture war episode where they, they talked about um, where I think, I think Holland was right that when you talk about a culture war, it's an internal war. And, and this, is, this has always been a war that has sort of been within, within Christianity, even, even the, the contemporary expressions that we've seen in, um, during the pandemic movements. And I think the very name of the leading organization we associate with the culture war, Moral Majority, speaks to the positive world. You could only call something the Moral Majority in an era when it was at least plausible to make that claim. Now, it might not. Now, I think, now again, Ren isn't really a historian and neither am I, but Moral majority, it's important to remember the connection between that and Nixon, because of course, if I remember correctly, Nixon talked about the silent majority. And it's sort of been a, a, a trope in a lot of these movements that the assumption is that we're the majority of the country, however we is conceptualized, and we are losing our grasp. And so moral majority basically was the assumption of Again, this is not very a, not a very reformed or Augustinian anthropology that I, most people are good people. This is this is very American. This is very Jeffersonian, actually, and and so that's that's where some of these this cultural language and some specifically Christian, especially reformed language, sort of butts heads, even though you'll see people not point this out in in some of the internal conversations not have been true even then, but much like Richard Nixon's silent majority, it was at least a plausible claim. And so the, um, the religious right, again, emerged in the 1970s out of this movement that was called the New Right at the time. And you might be saying, well, I'm reading a lot about the New Right right now, in which I just always like to tell people there's nothing older than the New Right. There's always a New Right uh, coming along. This is probably the most famous one. It was a big 70s and 80s uh, insurgency. And what um, they basically did was um, they saw that, uh, the, you know, the, the sexual revolution was happening, Roe versus Wade, prayer kicked out of schools. They said, things are going the wrong way. Godlessness is on the rise and we're going to fight back. So we're going to mobilize politically in order to take back the country uh, from the left. And, you know, up until the 1970s and even into the early 1980s, evangelicals had predominantly been Democrats. The first evangelical president was Jimmy Carter. And Newsweek magazine named 1976 the year of the evangelical because that was the year that, that he won. 
As late as 1983, the sociologist James Davison Hunter uh, found that a plurality of evangelicals uh, remained Democrats. But now, now this, is a, this is a really key point that he's making here because, again, people now here in the 2020s might not recognize this, but, but Aaron Wren is, is exactly right. Uh, Jimmy Carter was, so you could really begin to see sort of the, the turn from the main line to the evangelical happening in the 60s and 70s. People were leaving mainline churches and, and going to evangelical churches, and that mass movement took about 20 years. Uh, some whole churches would, would sort of get out, but they saw a lot of the issues that arose in the 70s. They're very similar to the issues that are in churches now in terms of women in leadership, um, same-sex uh, sexuality. All of these things were issues in the 70s, and people began then leaving People began then leaving mainline churches and joining evangelical churches. There are also a number of real big movements that happened in evangelicalism. There's a there's a filmmaker. He's um, he's a friend of uh, he's a friend of of Burn Power who who made a lot of movies in this era. A lot of people became Christians um, in the late 70s, early 80s. One of the most famous is Chuck Colson. And if you really get, want to get a sense of that era, read Born Again. Chuck Colson's memoir, and I've used this clip, not really a clip, but I've, I've referred to this often where Chuck Colson, of course, he was Richard Nixon's hatchet man, and he was the one that was going to go to jail, and he did go to jail. He started prison fellowship, but just at that point, too, he had been kind of a surly guy, and he comes home, and he basically tells his wife that he's become a Christian, and she's sort of like, well, I thought we were Episcopalian. And so you see this huge movement towards evangelicalism. Time magazine had born again on the cover because that's how Jimmy Carter introduced himself to the nation. He was a born-again Christian, and a lot of Americans thought, well, what is that? Well, born-again was sort of the way that evangelicals saw themselves as differentiating from the now in-decline, mainline WASP Christian movements. Under the leadership of people like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, this group of people realigned into the Republican Party in the mid-'80s and became, and I would argue remains, the largest and most important voting bloc in the Republican Party. And again, the culture warriors, uh, as their name implies, they took a, a highly combative and oppositional stance versus this emerging culture. They were looking for a fight. Okay, and what he's talking about here, this is sort of the rise of, not really the rise, but this is sort of the instantiation of the antithetical side of the argument that to take the country back, we need to gain political power, we need to, once we gain political power, then we can basically promote the kinds of policies that we want. Right. And it's also notable that the people we associate with the culture war movement are people who are sort of located far away from the major citadels of culture uh, in, in America. Um, they, they tended to be from backwaters, a lot of them. And they reach their followers mostly through their own platforms, like direct mail or paid for UHF TV shows uh, like the 700 Club. And now, now it's really key, again, to notice that, let's say, Trump's Protestant lineage, Norman Vincent Peale, 
was sort of the mainline Joel Osteen of his day. When Trump runs for president, suddenly he pivots to really embrace the evangelical, um, evangelical community because he knows that if he woos the evangelical community, they'll be deeply loyal to him. And, and in, in the election of 2016, uh, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz were sort of the favorites of the evangelicals. But when Trump won, they all sort of lined up behind him against Hillary Clinton. You know, this gave them a sort of marketing-driven televangelist style that we all know. Although later in the 80s, as these groups became political, politically active, groups like the Christian Coalition drew in big donor money. But originally, it was sort of donations from the flock. And so the major culture war figures, people you may have heard of, uh, Jerry Falwell of Moral Majority, who was where? Lynchburg, Virginia. Not a big city in kind of uh, Western Virginia. Uh, Pat Robertson of the Christian Broadcasting Network in Virginia Beach, again, not a major cultural center. James Dobson of Focus on the Family. I'm not sure exactly where he originally started, but Focus on the Family is in Colorado Springs today. The fact that there are a lot of Christian orgs in Colorado Springs, like again, another kind of smaller city, which at that time, Colorado was not really all, all that much in terms of growth. Uh, so that kind of gives you a sense of who was there. A second now, now it's it's real. It's also really helpful for those of you who aren't aware of the theological and ecclesiastical differences between these communities. Is someone like Doug Wilson today theologically, ecclesiastically, is really sort of fringe, but he comes because he's a he's sort of a. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe he's so he's a he's a reformed post millennial. Um, with ties to some of this Reconstruction movement, which is sort of a fringe movement in the Reformed, in the Reformed cluster of churches. But he, he sort of takes front and center on YouTube via social media. Um, Falwell, Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson was Pentecostal. Falwell was kind of old-style Southern Baptist. Um, but what happens in evangelicalism is that you sort of get this, the 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 distinctions, the theological distinctions blur. And again, a great book to read about this is Molly Worthen's, um, um, oh shoot, uh, Apostles of Reason, where, where she really walks through the history of neo-evangelicalism and how these groups, well, they, they, they can sort of find ways to build coalitions around certain key theological items, but then also some key political items. And that's what gives the group a lot of political power strategy of the positive world was seeker sensitivity, which again was also pioneered in the 1970s by people like Bill Hybels of Willow Creek Church in suburban Chicago or Rick Warren of Saddleback Church down in Orange County. And uh, again, um, you know, basically these are people, what happened with them was they saw that church attendance was in decline and they said, how are we going to get people to start going to church? How are we going to reach people for Christ? Now, now, it's helpful to note that Falwell Southern, Robertson Southern, I believe, um, but 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 it's it's helpful to note that the Seeker movement with Bill Hybels, that's Chicago, Rick Warren, that's the West, and neither of these guys, although Rick Warren is Southern Baptist. 
ne neither of these guys really want to fall into the political alignment. So, so their values are going to be generally conservative, but they're not going to be out there as political actors. And, and that's really a key differentiation between the moral majority, Falwell, focus on the family. These ministries very much took up political um, valence, but the seeker movement did not. The seeker movement wanted to be more non-aligned. And so in many ways, the moral majority, focus on the family, Pat Robertson, these, these people were team antithesis. Seeker movement, really team proto-winsome. Um, and the whole ethos behind the seeker movement where you, you took all the symbolism out of church, you were on sort of a campus that looked like a junior college campus, you had jazz music in church, all of these things. Bill Hybels, Bill Hybels' phrase was a safe place to hear a dangerous message. And so in that way, there definitely is continuity, and I think Ren is nicely drawing the continuities, but really with the seeker movement, you get the beginning of Team Winsome. And so, as the story goes, Bill Hybels went door to door in suburban Chicago, knocking on doors, and first question he'd ask is, do you go to church? And if the answer is yes, interview's over. If the answer is no, he's like, well, why do you go to church? Why don't you go to church? And then people would give all the list of reasons they, why they didn't go to church. He says, I'm going to design a church that these people want to go to. So uh, he uh, kind of shed many of the denominational distinctives, traditions, etc. He adopted this uh, sort of informality in liturgy and dress from the Jesus movement, which was a Christian. Uh, Christian. So, so this is really the liturgical roots of Team Winsome expression of the counterculture, contemporary Christian music uh, was brought in. And, you know, there was also a sort of a, um, a therapeutic style of preaching. What I mean by that is there's a lot of self-help. Uh, you know, uh, today you might hear a sermon on here's how you manage your social media or something like that. The Christian psychologist Henry Cloud, who some of you may know because he wrote or co-wrote many Christian books, he's actually been a regular speaker, or at least one point was a regular speaker at Willow Creek. They're getting very approachable, very non-threatening, not combative. And it's also helpful to note that, whereas in some ways, what also what Willow Creek also did, I made a number of trips to Willow Creek in the late 90s, and they would have every year they'd have a leadership conference, and they would bring in leaders of, of industry and business to give um, to give tips. And at this point, I still have some of them. At this point, local church pastors were, were supposed to be reading business leadership books because running a church was like running a business. And so this very much came into the church and uh, business leaders were, you know, they would be on, on board. So in, in a lot of ways, the seeker movement inherited some of the cultural alignment that the main that the mainline churches had and and many of the people that went to seeker churches um, were individuals that would have gone to mainline churches a generation before so you can begin to check to watch the continuity but now again team winsome has their roots in the seeker movement
This group is, again, still with us today, and you can think of this as basically the non-denominational suburban megachurch that we kind of um, mostly uh, know. And but, but their influence was far beyond just megachurches, because what happened in church communities was that very quickly your mom and pop churches were now bleeding members to the megachurches. And so what smaller churches and medium-sized churches, like Christian Reformed churches here in Northern California, very quickly, other Protestant churches, low church, non-liturgical churches, began adopting contemporary music. Within the churches in the 90s and aughts, you had the worship wars in the churches. Drums came into the sanctuary, guitars came into the sanctuary, because churches all over the place were basically adapting to market pressures. And if they didn't want to lose, especially young families, young families were the hot commodity in this, if they didn't want to lose young families, they had to adopt contemporary liturgy, which was contemporary music. This is also the same. So out of the Jesus movement, you had this also this the rise of Christian contemporary music. All of that began in that movement as well. And so even though the seeker movements, seeker churches, large suburban, um, large suburban non-denominational churches were a big part of this, this deeply impacted churches across the board. I think there's a couple notable things about this that talk about the positive world. First, just the term seeker-sensitive. I don't know when that term was invented. I didn't invent it, but people talk about seeker sensitivity. Just the very name assumes a lot. It, it was, to my mind, Willow Creek. Now, it's, it's helpful to note, too, that the seeker movement grows out of the church growth movement, which grows out of Fuller Seminary in Southern California, grows out of the Reformed Church of America Church, Robert Schuller, the Crystal Cathedral, which is now a Roman Catholic church. So there's there's a ton, there's there's so much written about all this there's a ton of information about this but this is this is the historical the historical roots of this fight a lot of people are seeking right so it's still positive in the sense that people are looking and we just need to give them some place to find you know also the idea of just going and asking people why they don't go to church and get expecting a coherent answer from it you know today if you knock on somebody's door and ask them why they don't go to church they probably look at you like you're from Mars or something. Like, why would a church? Who goes to church? It's just not. So, so if you listen to Tim Keller's analysis of this, because now remember, in, in some ways, Tim Keller's church in New York City is seeker church applied to the urban context, whereas the seeker church was suburban. The urban, um, Tim Keller's church was urban. And... And Keller, when, when you listen to Keller's talks in the early aughts, he, he basically noted that in the positive world, all churches had to do is sort of activate dormant Christians. And a lot of those dormant Christians were boomers or builders. But now I think this is, again, where Ren's thesis is correct. The culture is going to keep moving on and the culture is going to continue to shape people beyond the kinds of shaping that had happened during against the heyday of church attendance in American culture, which was during the Cold War. Part of the mental landscape, whereas back then, uh, it, it was essentially people kind of knew, well, yeah, you should possibly go to church. 
So those were two strategies of the positive world. As we entered the neutral world, a third strategy came to the fore, uh, which is uh, cultural engagement, cultural engagement. And this is a term that, again, the practitioners of this would happily embrace. They would say, yes, we practice cultural engagement. And I think there's a couple ways that we can think about the uh, cultural engagement movement. One is that it's a sort of seeker sensitivity for the cities. So again, the cities were coming back, all these young millennial and Generation X college grads and businesses, they're pouring into the cities. There's a new urban sensibility, a new urban culture. And just as guys like Hybels and uh, Rick Warren cracked the code on suburbia in the 1970s, this was about cracking the code on the urban environment. Okay, so they, they, uh, they were not, um, uh, so that's one of the things they were doing. And again, they uh, adopted uh, a variety of different styles. Um, you know, some of them are much more formal and traditional, liturgical. Others are more hip, cool, contemporary arts forward. But they found... And, and so one of the interesting things, one of the, one of the last times I went to Willow Creek in North Chicago, they had sort of cracked the code on the boomers, but they were trying to work on the Xers and it didn't work. They, they tried to apply what they had done with the boomers to the Xers and it didn't work. But now Tim Keller, if you read Center Church, which is kind of his main missional how to do an urban church guide, they were also doing what the seeker church were, churches were doing. They were planting churches in world-class cities. They were noting, this, this now gets into globalization, they were noting that their similarities in world-class churches world-class cities all around the world. So if you can plant a church in New York, you can plant a church in London, you can plant a church in Berlin, you can plant a church in Paris. And they were noting that there's commonalities. Now it would be slightly tuned, usually via music. Um, churches very quickly figured out that music was key and that you just basically borrow this from, let's say, the radio station. And what type of music are your people listening to normally Find a Christian-compatible um, version of that music and use that. Found styles that worked in the cities. And again, they adopted this therapeutic language uh, to be able to reach them. And you can think of this as a secret sensitivity for the city. Another way to think of it is as the opposite of the culture war. It's like the, the culture war, people wanted to fight against the culture. These people are like, let's not fight, let's sit down and talk. Let's try to get along with the culture. And again, these people were starting to develop, as it was becoming clear, the culture war strategy was a loser, wasn't gonna work. And they're in places that are not friendly to the culture war. And it's like, why should we just fruitlessly fight with people? Why don't we take advantage of this new pluralistic landscape and just sit down and talk with people? And if Now, I, I love this lecture. This is a terrific lecture. And if you're you're unaware of this whole thing, this lecture is a terrific introduction into it. It's helpful to remember that these suburban megachurches are, one of the places that these places are growing is the Old South. And so these churches are exploding in Atlanta, in Memphis. And, and because there's competition with the older churches, all of the churches are sort of picking up on these cues and these strategies that the seeker churches are. And this old take back America ethos 
that was in sort of the the places in America that didn't have political power as opposed to the places in America that had elite positions of power. New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle. Team Winsome really grew up in those places where they knew they had already in some ways. Now, Tim Keller writes a response to James Wood and Aaron Wren, and Tim Keller makes the argument, we were already living in a negative world. And as with many things like this, this is super complex. He has a point, but Wren also has a point. And so there, there's once you, as you focus in the resolution higher and higher and higher, you get to see that, yeah, Team Winsome sort of figured out that the old style revivalist anti-culture, go back to the Christ and culture book, Christ against culture, this will not work in New York City because New York City is the generator of national culture. It's the generator of world culture. Same as Los Angeles, same as San Francisco, same as Seattle, same as Chicago. These things are not going to work. So if you can't beat them, join them. And so Team Winsome decides, you know, Bill Hybels, we're going to create a safe place for a safe space for a dangerous message. Because if we, you know, the fundamentalist ethos was antithesis. This was, let's bring you in and slowly but surely we're going to see if one way or another you can come around to our thinking. Now, if you, so before I was interested in Jordan Peterson, I was very interested in Tim Keller. And so just as Jordan Peterson was a harder study, because, of course, my roots were much closer to Tim Keller. But one of the things, Tim Keller's main strategy, sermon-wise, was to agree in principle with what those seekers already wanted and show how the gospel and Jesus actually get you there better. That was Tim, Tim, Tim Keller's strategy. That's very different from sort of the old-style um, antithetical approach that, that those in non-centers of cultural generation and elite power were using. Take Back America is a strategy of people who feel they have lost it. New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, they already have it. There's no taking back. They already have it. And the question is, well, let's see if we can subvert. So in, in many ways, that's sort of the, the comparison between full frontal assault and subversion. And, and, you know, even in, if you listen to, say, John Verveke, when he talks about stealing the culture, that's much more of a winsome strategy than an antithetical strategy. If we articulate the truths of Christianity in a compelling way, in language that they're prepared to understand, right? In ways that affirm the things that, you know, we can affirm in that culture, that's the secret sensitivity aspect, then maybe we can get a hearing for Christianity. And it did work for parts of it. So again, as I said, they came in and they, they rather than being negative. It's also helpful to note that if you looked at someone like Bill Hybels, safe space to hear a dangerous message, Bill Hybels was an undeconstructed Christian, evangelical, in that when it all boiled down to it, it was the Roman road, it was the four spiritual laws, and I think that that facilitates Wren's 
idea of it was a positive space because all of these tools that were developed in the mid 20th century uh, evangelism explosion were, again, Wren noted that the seekers knocked on their door and said, um, why is it you don't go to church? A generation before D. James Kennedy in Florida, their people knocked on the door and said, if you were to die tonight, what would you tell Jesus? Um, what would you tell God in order for him to let you into your is into his heaven? That was evangelism explosion. That was a generation before. And you can tell it's a little bit more antithetical, but the presumption again is that the person that you knock on the door has some sense, some Christ hauntedness that uh, hell might be an issue. And so maybe, but maybe you'll get a hearing. Towards this culture, they're like, look, there's a lot we like about the city. We love the arts. We like the life of the mind. Um, you know, we like being urban. Uh, we, we care about profession and vocation and things of that nature. Uh, and the other thing that they did that was the opposite of the, the culture war is that they were typically studiously apolitical. They're like, we don't do politics. And again, evangelical sort of stereotyped is very conservative. These cities are much more progressive. They're like, we don't do politics. Although this sort of- Now, now remember what he said earlier, that a generation before, evangelicals would have been more likely to vote Democratic than Republican. And it's in the 80s with Ronald Reagan that you saw this big shift. It was also, of course, the same time that people were leaving the mainline churches. And when they left from mainline to evangelical, eventually they would also leave from Democratic to Republican. It broke down a bit in 2016 with the Trump nomination when a number of these people you know, really denounced him. Uh, they really sort of became essentially the never Trumpers. Not all of them, um, but some of them. And there was, though, I would say, a political manifestation of the cultural engagement model, which you can see in a character like George W. Bush. You know, the fact that the left called him Bush Hitler and all this stuff, that they hated him, we shouldn't let that obscure the extent to which he really was very different from the culture war evangelicals. Uh, what did he tout? His catchphrase was compassionate conservatism. He wanted to have a kinder, gentler conservatism. He made a point of saying explicitly, he said, oh, basically it's almost like a literal quote, I'm not going to kick gays. We're not going to be anti-gay. He supported civil unions. He didn't support gay marriage, but he supported civil unions for gays. Less than a week after 9-11, he made the first ever presidential visit to a mosque in order to reassure Muslims that, hey, you're a valued part of America. We don't blame you for what happened. So this is very, very, very different than what you might have expected. from. It's helpful to also remember that where do many Muslims in America live? Michigan. What is Michigan? Battleground state. These politicians are not dumb. I'm a culture war type person. And, uh, but today I would say like the, the kind of the platonic form of this cultural engagement leadership in politics is somebody like Nebraska Senator Ben Sass. I think he really represents this. But again, the pastors and the, you know, the self-consciously evangelical people, they tended to be um, very, very uh, studiously apolitical. They didn't talk about politics up until Trump. And again, uh, as I implicated, this is basically much more urban strategy. Uh, the people we associate this were much more urban. So you can think of who are these people? Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church is probably the most 
biggest and most influential name here uh, New York City, Hillsong Church. I would put in this category, very different, more the hip, cool category, uh, but they did it. Now, it's helpful to remember Hillsong is out of Australia. Australia and Canada are interesting because they're, they've got more European DNA and influence than the United States does. And so they're Tim Keller, this again, I think, is some agreement with Tim Keller's pushback against Aaron Wren. Tim Keller, Canadian evangelicals, Australian evangelicals, in some ways are already living in a negative world or a neutral world. And so increasingly they're adopting cultural engagement strategies instead of antithetical strategies. Um, the Veritas Forum, if you're familiar with the Veritas Forum, literally started in the early 90s, goes to college campuses and like invites a Christian person to sit down with a secular person and talk. I mean, he doesn't get any more cultural engagement than that. Uh, contemporary artist Makoto Fujimura, if you know him, a writer Andy Crouch, these are people I would put in this cultural engagement uh, bucket. So these three different movements, the culture war, the secret sensitivity, and cultural engagement, they represented three strategies for dealing with sort of changing times. But I don't want to overly make you think like, you know, I'm a consultant. I came from a management consulting background, as, uh, as uh, Pastor Wiley said. But I don't want you to think that a bunch of MBAs cook these strategies up in the lab. Okay, This wasn't just a purely strategic model. There were also sort of other demographic, geographic, cultural, dispositional, theological differences between these groups that sort of drove uh, a lot of what happened. From a geographic perspective, you could potentially say culture war was rural evangelicalism, secret uh, sensitivity was suburban evangelicalism, and cultural engagement was urban evangelicalism. Right. So in many ways, you already had positive, neutral, and negative worlds practicing and you just see the continue the intensification of it. So college campuses, urban areas, negative world continues to intensify. Um, neutral world in, sub in suburbia continues to sort of switch, go from neutral to negative. Even rural areas getting increasingly neutral. That's sort of, if you kind of imagine it as a tide, that's probably a good way to think about it. Also the culture warriors tended to have a sort of fundamentalist sensibility about them. And some of them actually came from fundamentalist backgrounds. The seeker sensitives and the cultural engagers had a more evangelical uh, sensibility about them. So fundamentalism really prioritized doctrinal purity, and it was frequently separatist and hostile towards the culture or people that they felt would, would water down doctrine. Uh, evangelicalism, or sometimes called neo-evangelicalism, started in the 1940s when people like Billy Graham and like that said, let's try to take the basic fundamentalist theology, but let's target the mainstream. Let's try to reach the mainstream of society. And um, it was much more, I would say, missional rather than doctrinal in focus. And so this division of what I could, again, uh, sensibilities or sort of dispositions or ways of engaging with the world between sort of confessional or doctrinal purity on the one hand and revivalism 
or a missional focus on the other. That's been a pervasive divide throughout American um, religious history. I think there were also other differences between these groups. You know, the, the culture warriors were mostly middle class or lower middle class. The leaders of the culture war movement were college educated, but most of the followers were not. Uh, whereas the secret sensitives and cultural engagers were much more solidly middle class or even upper middle class, much better educated, uh, for example. If you go to church in, in Manhattan, evangelical church in Manhattan, virtually the entire congregation is college degreed. That's not the case in a lot of places. Um, uh, the other thing is that the culture warriors attracted a lot of uh, Pentecostals. There were a lot of charismatics in that movement. Pat Robertson, I think, was very influential in this. And there were certain, some disagreements and some tensions, perhaps, between the Pentecostals and non-Pentecostals in that movement. But there was a big, heavy Pentecostal emphasis. Uh, whereas in the seeker-sensitive and the cultural engagement world, they've tended to be much less Pentecostal. And the people who do sort of affirm the continuation of the spiritual gifts tend to be very low-key about it. The culture warriors were also very heavily shaped by the Cold War. They weren't just culture warriors, they were cold warriors. And again, we see this in something like Jerry Falwell's Liberty University. The very name sort of associates his theological project and his political project with America's fight against, again, godless communism. He didn't... Now, now there's a theological layer to this, too. Many of those, um, many of those groups would be functionally very much over on the, the free will side of things, the Arminian side of things. Originally call it Liberty University. It was originally something else, and it was renamed uh, to that. Uh, this was also an era. I think it was Lynchburg. Not, not, not the nicest name if you want to become the largest Christian university in the nation. It emerged in this era in which there was tremendous end times fervor. Uh, you know, the Soviet Union was supposed to be Gog and Magog, and it's, we're going to have an imminent rapture or tribulation or all of the above. And there was sort of end times fever. There was books like The Late Great Planet Earth in the 70s selling millions of copies. And, um, and so that was really big. The cultural engagers, by contrast, they developed in a post-Cold War world. So they didn't really have any of this Cold War legacy about them. And they had uh, not an end times perspective, but uh, an end of history perspective. If you remember Francis Fukuyama's book, an article about that, which incidentally came out in the early 90s, uh, right as this sort of um, neutral world uh, was getting going. And so again, these strategies, you know, culture war, secret sensitive, cultural engagement, uh, they weren't they, they were just purely strategies. There were also different groups of people. Uh, but I do think that the, the particularities of their strategies and the way that they developed were linked directly to the eras in which they came about. Now, we have three worlds and three strategies. But you know, two of the strategies are in the positive world and one's in the negative world, uh, in the neutral world. But what's in the negative world? And the answer is, there has not yet been an evangelical strategy to deal with the negative world. The one strategy that's been proposed for the negative world is Rod Dreher's Benedict Option. If any of you read his book, The Benedict Option, that came out. Now, Dreher is Eastern Orthodox, uh, formerly Catholic, and uh, he may have underestimated the, he, he admits he doesn't know anything about evangelicalism. He'll tell you that straight up. And he, he may have underestimated how 
you know, it might make some people throw up to have something named after like Catholic monks and things like that. But nevertheless, evangelicals basically rejected the Benedict option. And it wasn't really because there was too much Catholic imagery in it. It was really, I think, denial. People didn't want to admit that we're in this negative world. I think Christianity Today magazine commissioned four people to write about the Benedict option, and all four of them didn't like it for various reasons. And I think that's changing. That's changing. I put together this uh, Three Worlds framework and published originally a version of it in 2017. It was well received then. And then I sort of updated it. And it was published in First Things magazine earlier this year and got a huge response. But I was amazed that there are still people essentially denying that the negative world exists. For example, Tim Keller and David French implicitly did that when they sort of raised the objection, hey, Tim Keller said this, hey, when I went to New York, it was a hostile world. I was in the negative world when I went to New York. I was never in a neutral world. David French did the same thing, where he's sort of like, I know all these people who've been persecuted my entire adult life. So the, I call it, this is the argument that it's the same old negative world that it ever was. And so there's nothing new, implicitly, there's nothing new about today, where I think clearly we are in unprecedented times. See, I, I think French and Keller have a point. But I also think Aaron is right that, you know, you might need more layers of gradation here because I, I do think I do think on the, the basic grounds, Ren is right. You can just see what's going on and and, uh, you know, you, you know, when, when the when the skirmish line in the culture war is transgender athletes and girls sports, you know, something is really, really, really different in the country. And so there has been the state of denial. But again, I think it's changing. And again, we see this in the fact that evangelicals really have not developed their own strategy for the negative world. And I don't think there's going to be just one or just two. I think we're sort of in an exploration mode trying to figure things out. Uh, but that's the really the to do. But as we've gone into the negative world, and these three models have... Now, it's interesting when he says evangelicals haven't developed a strategy because um, team antithesis is a strategy. And in many ways, I think many continue to... I think many continue to imagine, well, if we can win elections and, and elect our people, I don't think that's... That's not really a strategy for church growth. Now, I think some of the strategies emerging, and, and I think the Jordan-Peterson phenomena and what we see happening on the religious side of this little corner is definitely a result of the negative world. And, yeah. Been exposed to the pressures of the negative world, it has had big consequences for evangelicalism. It has caused a sort of adaptation or even deformation of some of these strategies. And of these groups, the cultural engagers clearly have the most at risk from the transition to the negative world. Um, for one thing, the shift from a positive world to a neutral world represented a sort of downward slide in status for Christianity, but the cultural engagement strategy was much higher status than a culture war strategy, right? People like Tim Keller were treated as legitimate by secular society in a way that 
Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson never were. So, you know, he can write for The New Yorker. He can write for The Atlantic. Nicholas Kristof does nice sit-downs with him. And you know, Mark Galley, on his way out the door at Christianity Today, wrote a piece that really ticked off a lot of the cultural engagers. But, you know, Galley had a point, and, and I think Wren has a point here, too. The New York Times. Actually, last weekend in the Wall Street Journal Weekend Edition, there was a very nice profile in the review section with Tim Keller. He gets very friendly press in a way that these other guys, you know, wouldn't have. So these guys, these people have a cultural status to lose uh, that the culture warriors never had. And that doesn't mean they're all unwilling to lose it, but they actually do have something to lose. And by the way, they're also higher status than the seeker sensitives because urban is higher status than suburban, basically. And so... Right. Tim Keller would go on TV in a way that Rick Warren and Bill Hybels never did. Tim Keller was seen as educated, urbane. I, I, I'll have to check. I highly doubt Rick Warren ever did a talk at Google. Although, again, remember, 2008, Rick Warren prays at Obama's inaugural, and then he would not pray, he would not be allowed to pray in 2012 at Obama's second inaugural. And the second inaugural had the drama around Giglio, because then again, and I think this, this is exactly Wren's point, and this is exactly why he's right. By 2012, Giglio, Rick Warren, not, would not be welcome on the stage of a Democratic Party inaugural because of their stance on same-sex marriage. Even though not many years before, um, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and before that, George H.W. Bush were all in the, remember, civil unions? Uh, one of the exa example I like to give of the risk that's posed by the negative world to the cultural engagers was when Tim Keller went to Princeton Seminary in 2017. So Princeton Seminary is actually a mainline seminary. It's in the PCUSA. It's probably their flagship seminary, uh, but it's not super liberal. I would say it's kind of moderate by PCUSA standards. Um, a number of evangelical pastors have attended there. Now, remember what I said earlier about Westminster, Philadelphia, where Tim Keller was a professor. Tim Keller was a professor at Westminster, Philadelphia. Westminster, Philadelphia was started when the modernist fundamentalist fight happened at Princeton and the fundamentalists lost. And so they went out and founded Westminster Theological Seminary, Philadelphia, which became um, which became a seminary for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, or the OPC. So when Tim Keller was invited, when he won, what was it, the Kuiper Prize? Again, Abram Kuiper. Again, this is all very close to the Christian Reformed Church. When Tim Keller was awarded that prize, this in some ways was in some ways analogous to Peterson at Cambridge. Remember when Peterson was invited to Cambridge, then disinvited? Keller was invited to Princeton and then disinvited. You can see, you can see the times change. And I think, again, I think Aaron Wren is fundamentally right. There was a negative, there was some negativity that someone like David French and Tim Keller had to face, but the overall cultural shift, Aaron Wren is right. And 
they were going to give him their annual Abraham Kuyper Award and let him, you know, give a talk there. Well, some of the students objected. They say he doesn't. And there was a significant financial prize in it as well. He doesn't believe in ordaining women, so he's a bigot. He's this, he's that. And so they rescinded the award. They didn't give it to him, although they did let him give a talk. And I'm like, if Tim Keller is too much. I believe I did a commentary on that talk. The talk is worth finding. It, it's sort of a bootleg recording, but it's, it's worth finding. For a moderate mainline seminary, the award, they didn't give it to him, although they did let him give a talk. And I'm like, if Tim Keller is too much for a moderate mainline seminary, nobody else stands a chance, right, of getting a hearing because he's the best at being able to navigate uh, situations like this. Again, cultural engagers are also much more likely to live in sort of upscale urban environments, which are very, very secular progressive. They work in more higher paying, prestigious professions for mainstream employers. They love the social milieu of the upper middle class, you know, the historic architecture, the you know, pour over coffees, the farm to table restaurants, the luxury gyms, all of that stuff. I love that stuff too, nothing wrong with that. But you know, these are, these are the environments in which the pressures of the negative world are most intense. This is where you're much more likely to get canceled. You're much more likely to get canceled if you work for Goldman Sachs in New York than if you work in a muffler shop in rural Indiana, where I'm from. You know, you're just not gonna, you're gonna be exposed to different pressure. And so, um, uh, you know, I think that um, this, this pressure that they are under is often underappreciated by sort of red state Christians who, to them, it may be still the positive world to some extent where they live. And I think what's happened with the cultural engagers is a lot of them have sort of given up on the engagement and they've sort of become synchronizers with the culture. And for, so for example, they're becoming ever more vocal, ever more strident, ever more militant about if, issues like immigration or race. Refugees and racism, I say, are their two biggest issues. They're very loud on those issues. And virtually everything that they say today is a secular talking point maybe with a little evangelical gloss, but there doesn't seem to be much genuinely Christian input uh, on the circumstances. You know, they, they always sort of downplayed the flashpoint social issues like abortion or, or sexuality. They never really talked a lot about it. They tried to avoid talking about it. But today, they've actually even softened their stances on it further. So what you'll see is on abortion, you'll hear a lot of people talk about being holistically pro-life. So, you know, welfare for single mothers. I, I don't know if this is just today. I think this, is, this has been for a long time. ...is a pro-life issue. Care for the refugees is a pro-life issue. And so they don't say that abortion's good necessarily, but they like to talk about other things as being pro-life. Similarly, on sexuality, you're much less likely to hear a sermon on traditional Christian moral teaching and much more likely to hear a lament about how the church has been unwelcoming to sexual minorities in the past. And they will use terms like sexual minorities that come from uh, secular um, society. And so this group is sort of becoming much more... Now, I don't think homosexuality came from the church. That's also from sexual society. Uh, that's also from secular society. So his point that um, the winsome crowd tends to... Um, hug left and punch right is I think it's a fair I think it's a fair critique and a fair I think it's a fair critique but 
Um, a lot of both, everyone does sort of the, let's, let's call it the um, verbal recalibration depending on where they want to go and who they want to go with. We're in sync with secular progressive culture, I would say. Now, that's not all of them. Tim Keller, to his credit, has not done this. He stayed, I think he stayed remarkably consistent uh, on other, and many things. In fact, you can actually argue that Keller, for those of you who know him, has actually gotten stronger on the conservative side on some issues. When he was a pastor, you, you could go Google like Tim Keller abortion. People would ask him about abortion. He'd sort of do a tap dance. You know, now if you look at his tweet. And, and again, his um, people always have people who people who have suspicious minds are, you know, always, well, Tim Keller's really a liberal at heart. No, Tim Keller was actually more conservative at heart. And so when he retired, he got more conservative because he was modulating what he was saying for his audience for missional purposes. We, he will straight up say, you know, that. You but, know. but that modulation for missional purposes, again, illustrates the missional strategy. Is it cultural engagement or winsome? Or is it anti or is it the antithesis is it antithetical? Because being antithetical is also a missional strategy. And it's it's a very valid missional strategy. Um, again, we could we could point to so, so if you look like at people like Beckett Cook it was and, relationship. and Rosaria Butterfield, these are two people that super switched. In other words, they were all in uh, living gay lifestyles, had a conversion experience, and they came 180 degrees. And so a lot of time, Team Winsome will complain that Team Antithesis doesn't have a point. It's just wrong. Team Antithesis, there are many who, there are many stories that in some ways validate Team Antithesis. But there are stories on both sides. And so in that sense, both sides are strategies, but they also sort of reflect different, um, they also reflect different temperaments, frankly. Some people just temperamentally are much more winsome cultural engagement. Other people temperamentally are super an antithesis. And so you tend to go back and forth. You know, church, you know, abortion's bad. <laughs> I mean, he'll qualify, you know, and say things like, yes, we need to care for, for moms and things like that. But he'll straight up say abortion is bad. I think on some of these things, he's actually more direct than he was in the past. But a lot of these guys are becoming very culturally synchronized. And I think for their part, the culture warriors, they've sort of uh, evolved towards Trumpist populism. So they're Trumpist in a couple senses. One, they support Trump. And candidly, some of them support Trump to an unhealthy cult of personality uh, degree. And they also support his sort of policies around, you know, immigration, trade, or even post-liberal politics for people who kind of find out about that stuff. They're also populist because they attack the elites sort of in the name uh, of the people. And I think that and, and, and this is where Ren is such an interesting guy, because he he's from rural Indiana, not a place for the elites. But he spent time as an urban planner. I think he was an urban planner. He was in New York City. He was in Redeemer for a little while. So he's been in those places too. And so Aaron Wren is not a populist at all. And most of his videos are about 
he's really looking for a strategy because he believes that um, at, at some point Christianity is going to need to recapture something of what it had back in the mainline waspy days when it had a hegemony in American culture. Now, I should probably have him on the channel. I spoke with him at that conference in Chicago. Um, so he, in that way, doesn't sort of fit in with the populists either. And, and part of why this gets so interesting is, is many of the figures, by virtue of their theological and ecclesiastical stances, don't fit into the populists. Now, this is where he just recently did a video where he basically made the point that Roman Catholics are doing better. Uh, Hezi recently had on one, of a, on one of those little live streams, again, hardly anybody's watching these things, but Hezi had a live stream where he was talking about, in many ways, things parallel to the state of Israel, where it's not Christian, but it's in the state of Israel, you've got this real question as to whether it's going to be sort of secular Jews or observant Jews who run the show, and the observants are winning. And so then suddenly you get what, what often happens when you get conversations like this is, is the word theocracy comes into play. Now, part of how the American tradition is different is because by virtue of the fact that there was, there initially, again, were state churches in some of the state, but there was never a, a national state church for the federal government. America has always resisted theocracy as such. But now when we have Roman Catholics, the Catholics have a tradition of, see, the, the Catholics aren't really full-blown theocracy, let's say, in the way that perhaps, and I don't know enough, but perhaps orthodoxy has more of that because there's a long tradition of coziness, you know, and this is a theological tradition. So all of these figuring out the relationships between politics and religion and the relationship between church and state. You have the separation of church and state that's brought to the early United States in the Bill of Rights by Thomas Jefferson. And many churches and many Christian leaders in the United States are there. This, of course, is in contrast to the Islamic world. And that's where I've got to listen to Verveke's conversation with his with his friend from Iran. Now, it's it's really helpful to remember that. Um, I'll hold that. I'll hold that card for now. But these these questions right now we're dealing with the kinds of major questions that a lot of the questions from the Protestant Reformation are on the table. But questions that were sort of didn't need to be dealt with in the Protestant Reformation, where you had things like the Peace of Augsburg, where whatever prince is in charge of whatever little um, part of the Holy Roman Empire can decide what the religion of his country is. You know, if you have the King of France, I mean, basically, after the Protestant Reformation, you still had, in many cases, all the way up till now, a a formal relationship between church and state that was broken in America. In America, even though it was formally broken, there was always sort of an implicit cultural connection between 
the majority Protestant religiosity and the state. And that was very much the positive world. To be a church, to, if you wanted to really rise in politics, you should be a churchgoer. Many atheists have long noted that we've never had a president of the United States as an outspoken atheist. But increasingly, what we're seeing is that atheist is, in effect, sort of a religious posture. And so these are all issues that we're dealing with now, and that's part of the reason why the Winsome War is so vital at this moment. They have also experienced some deformation about that stuff. They're also populist because they attack the elites sort of in the name uh, of the people. And I think they have also experienced some deformation as they have essentially jettisoned some of their traditional touchstones. The thing I really have in mind here is this idea that good character is a precondition to holding public office or some type of key position in society. You may remember this was the issue with the Bill Clinton impeachment. They were like, Bill Clinton simply lacks the moral character to be president, period. Well, now these people all voted for Trump, you know, and he's had all these affairs and he's done all these things. And it's like, well, we can't let Hillary win, can we? And so I think there, there's sort of a reality. And of course, we just saw the, the Herschel Walker business. I mean, the... the this last election in America had a variety of people for whom um, th they just seemed somewhat unsuited for office. Al politique uh, uh, approach now that this group has uh, sort of a sort of adopted, and so these sort of shifts in adaptations and deformations have produced sort of realignment and conflict for a few reasons, and one of them uh, is that. The other, other than the kind of a few institutions that are like hardcore culture war or a hardcore cultural engager, uh, most churches, like these suburban megachurches, they contain a mix of people with a mix of dispositions. And these people are sort of being polarized by a couple of forces. One of them is Trump. The other is wokeness. And you could add a third to that, I guess, which is COVID, what to do about COVID. But I think the COVID one was less about creating the divisions than sort of exacerbating the divisions. But there are some people, especially a lot of these sort of people from affluent suburbs who were sort of Chamber of Commerce Republican types, they just couldn't go for Trump. They thought he was just low class, boorish character. Trump was just a bridge too far. And, and, and again, one of the, the real good things about Wren is that Aaron Wren is also class sensitive in this. And, and so class comes into his analysis. And, you know, for reasons of either they, they still do believe culture matters in leaders or they just didn't like low class behavior. They just, they just totally went insane about Trump. And then there are another group of people who, you know, again, when the Great Awakening hit the world, it also hit the church. And a lot of churches have just become obsessed. Every sermon is about some element of racism. I, you know, I... You, you practically hear in some of these things. I walked into a church the other day, the other month, and it was like I practically sat through a Native American land acknowledgement at the beginning of the sermon. I'm like, what's going on here? And so a lot of people are very alarmed by that, and they're leaving churches. And so if you're somebody that's the Trump issue. So, again, if you I talked about the history of the fundamentalist modernist fight, the beginning of the 20th century. Again, Marston writes about that. Then you had in the. 60s and 70s, 
you had another mass exodus of the mainline churches into evangelical churches, which sort of set up the evangelical hegemony in the 80s and 90s and the political movement. And now the question is, what happens now? Will there be will there be more people moving around based on woke? See, I, I think that the the part of what's difficult about this is that churches are by structure conservative. And so some of the wokish stuff will stay around longer in the church than it will in the culture, ironically, because that's that's sort of how churches are made and what they're made to do. So it's it's hard to know how this stuff shapes out. But part of part of what's different is that church, so many more people were going to church and the culture was so much more positive in the 60s and 70s when you had that big migration out of mainline into evangelical than it is now. And many churches are one generation away from non-viability. And church, because of the seeker movement, and because of, so, so part of the church growth movement was management by objective. You attract a certain kind of person by, um, oh, hang on a second. And then the, the woke issue are really dividing people, causing a lot of divisions, causing a lot of realignments. And then you throw COVID on there, and it's really fuel uh, on the fire. And again, it's, been, it's increasingly acrimonious, increasingly the culture wars within the church. There's a lot of realignment happening. It's happening in the Republican Party uh, as well, but it's also happening in the church. And so I think this has left evangelicalism in flux, and it's kind of future is kind of up in the air, kind of in doubt. And I think a lot of this comes from the fact that we have not yet taken the measure of the negative world and said, now that we're here, what do we do? How do we live as individuals? How do we live as the church? How do we be on mission? How do we adapt to a world where the institutions of society do not look favorably on Christianity? That's a very difficult problem that I don't think anybody has figured out but fortunately for us, that's the topic of this conference. And I'm very happy to hear Joe Rigney and James Wood tell us the solutions after I tell us the problem. So thank you very much. And, and again, I think Aaron Wren is right on his analysis. The church doesn't know how, the evangelical church particularly, because in America, evangelicals are, of course, heir of the split of the fundamentalist modernist movement. And so all of this take back, you don't hear Roman Catholics say, take back America. You don't hear Orthodox say, take back America, because they never had it. Evangelicals are at least heirs of the Protestant hegemony that had America. But again, it's Hegemony over America was different. The situation in England where you have a state church and in the other realms of the queen, those will be different. Situation in Latin America, very different. And in the French, France and the French colonies, very different. But evangelicals are in uncharted territories. And even, see, see again, someone might look at this and say, oh, Aaron Wren is team antithesis. Not exactly. He's not a populist, and if you listen to enough of his stuff, he is asking the question, how can Christianity once again become, ha have the positions of power it once had? Now, 
this sort of meets the Tom Holland thesis. And I would argue that the secular elites have within them the legacy of Christianity. But they also are in uncharted territories. And you see that with, I, th I think a lot of people imagine that the woke would inherit the earth. And I think it's increasingly clear that they will not. That wokeism, which almost anyone could spot right from the start, was just plain too incoherent to actually have a regime that lasts. So I've got to, got to keep an eye. I've got my... Uh, security camera at the house here and uh, the porch pilots um the porch pirate stole a package from me a couple of weeks ago so i'm uh oh that's my neighbor who just came home i think so when a car slows down in front of the house i already ran home and put a package in so um because my wife is she's working all week and christmas eve is saturday and christmas is sunday and kids coming over and all that so getting ready for the holiday anyway so the woke clearly won't inherit the earth, and in many ways, nobody knows what the way looking forward is. You know, the, the, old, the whole end of history is, you know, was <laughs> there's a good argument that, that they basically misread the text. Um, there's another delivery truck. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't tell you all the delivery things. It's not what you're here for. So when you look at this little corner of the internet, or as Hezzy calls it, um, a brave space, not a self not a safe space, I, I think what Ren does here is is really important because even though this sounds like sort of in church stuff, Christianity has been so dominant that usually you can sort of track the really big stuff. By seeing what's going on in church. If you remember when I started this, I talked about at the estuary meeting, someone asked, you know, how do we say if things are getting better or things are getting worse? Well, always that evaluation requires something of a yardstick to measure it by. And one of the functions that religions have are is they have a much longer term yardstick to measure things by. And that's that's one of the functions of religion. Without a very long tradition where you can at least try to gain some perspective on current changes, it's very difficult to make any sort of evaluation. So I think generally speaking, Wren, Aaron Wren is right here with his evaluation that with respect to Christianity, um, Christianity as a brand is by no means what it was. Where does this all go? Will evangelicalism be able to sort of get its feet under it again? Now, when, when I say that, people, if you, if you say look at numbers, evangelical churches are not doing as badly as, let's say, um, Orthodox or Catholic churches. And some of you say, well, what do you mean? Lots of, lots of young people are coming into Orthodox churches. Yeah, but they're losing their immigrants faster than, let's say, the Jordan, Peterson, Jonathan, Peugeot, Jay Dyer wave can fill it up. You've got some new little church plants that are orthodox. But again, that little movement into orthodoxy of former atheists and American nominal Christians or even evangelicals, that's tiny compared to the sorts of losses that are happening because of because of the, way, the, drift, the drift that the culture is going. 
evangelicalism, there are many places that are far less negative than, let's say, downtown Manhattan or Los Angeles. And there are many places where things are still working for the church. You have churches that are growing. The church is massive, and the context is complex like that, making generalizations difficult. But So this is the first and... If you really want to hear a speech, listen to Wren's second. I wanted to set the table with this because I figured, even though some of you might be aware of his three worlds of evangelism, his speech, I think, was an excellent articulation of it. But his next speech is really something. And that one I really want to walk through. So... All right, that's it. Um, I think this will probably be a longer video again. And you know, some of you said, "What? What happened to the two-hour videos?" Well, um, I haven't I haven't checked this one yet to see where it is. But it's a forty-one-minute talk, and usually it's two or three to one in terms of a commentary. So, uh, as always, let me know what you think. Leave a message.